Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and joining me today is Janice Henderson's Jamie Ross to talk us through all things Europe, which I'm excited about because we don't talk about Europe often and there is interesting news coming out of the area for investors to keep an eye on, which goes beyond the football. Jamie joined Janice Henderson in 2007 and has been manager of Henderson Eurotrust since 2018. Over the past three years, the trust's net asset value has risen by 53%, ahead of 36% for the FTSE Europe XUK index. Jamie, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mary. And it's nice to hear someone excited about Europe. I don't I don't hear that often enough, so thanks <laughs> for the intro. <laughs> yes, it's very true. So from your fund literature, it looks like you're a bottom-up quality growth stock picker. Can you just start by describing exactly what characteristics you're looking for in the companies you invest in? Of course. Um, I try and follow a really simple approach. And it's an approach that is very focused on return on investor capital. And in particular, there are two types of investment opportunity that I'll consider. So the first type of investment I'll look for is businesses um, that I would call compounders, which is pretty self-explanatory. But these are companies that are good businesses today. You know, they're businesses with a high return on investor capital. And really importantly, they're businesses where when I look at the share price, the share price is telling me that the return on capital is going to fade faster than I am expecting when I look at that business. So that's the first thing I look for, compounders. The second thing, which is it's kind of all, almost the opposite, is uh, businesses that I would term as improvers. And these are companies that are generating at this point in time quite a low or average return on invested capital. So they don't screen as the good companies of today. But there is something about that business in particular or something about that industry that I'm looking at that when I do my analysis, I come to the conclusion that return on investor capital is going to go up over time. And again, that's not sufficient. It must be the case that the share price is not pricing that in. So the share price must be pricing in return staying low. And that's what makes them interesting opportunities. So those are the two things that I will I will look for. OK, great. And would you um, count yourself as an opportunistic investor to an extent because it looks like you changed your portfolio positioning um, towards the end of last year as as the reflation trade was kicking in how um how much have how's your fund position now for in terms of the value and growth um blend that we're we're seeing at the moment sure um so in terms of the first part of your question am i an opportunistic investor um, I, I would say yes. Um, you know, I'm someone that if I think that I can find an opportunity that fits within the kind of businesses that I like to buy. So those those compounders or an improver that I described earlier, then I will buy it. You know, I will take an opportunity to invest. So, you know, I, I'm not I'm not too fussed about whether I end up holding something for three, four, five years or in a minority of cases, three, four, five months. So, yes, opportunistic, I think, is a, is a fair description of, of what I do. Opportunistic can give the impression that someone is focused on, on the macro, you know, is going to take big positioning calls. Now, that is something that I would push back against. That is something that I, I don't tend to do. I tend to focus far more on individual companies and the individual investment prospects of that business rather than think too widely about the macro. Now, 
given we're talking about Europe. So we're going to come and talk about the macro later. I'm I'm very happy to express my views, but it's not something I, I tend to form strong investment opinions over. But having said all of that, in 2020, I mean, in many ways, such an exceptional year. Um, I mean, a, a terrible year in, in many ways. But from an invent from a purely from an investment point of view, it was a year when an opportunistic strategy could could make decent money for for shareholders and and for and for clients. And we we had a good year last year. And and part of the reason was our flexibility and ability to move. Um, you know, if we go back to the beginning of 2020. You know, in, in March, we were sitting there and the market had fallen 30 percent. You know, I mean, if you think about what that is telling you, the market is telling you that every single company in Europe on average is worth a third less than they were three, four weeks ago. I mean, it's simple stuff, but that was a very dramatic move. And we took advantage of that by at the lows of the market, initiating a few positions in companies that we that we felt had become deeply um, undervalued for their return on invested capital prospects. And then if we fast forward towards the end of 2020, so that October, November period, um, again, we found a, a period of time when our transactions, our trading activity really became quite heightened. And the reason being is that over the course of 2020, and arguably for, for, for a few years running up to that, the, the kind of elastic that was stretching between some of the lower quality companies we would consider investing in, some of the more cyclical businesses, and uh, on the other extreme, some of the higher quality companies, that elastic was stretching to breaking point. And we felt that there were a number of opportunities, especially amongst what we would describe as reopening beneficiaries. So businesses that would do well when the global economy finally reopened, we found a number of opportunities to buy by companies uh, in that period. And just to give you give you a few examples, I mean, these are pretty, pretty extreme examples in a way, but we bought an airline. I mean, I, I, I've rarely owned an airline in, in all the years I've been I've been managing money. You know, it's not something that I tend to make a habit of. But we we looked at a company at the time it was. Um, so we looked at IAG, um, which is the, obviously the owner of British Airways um, and that business to us, the share price was telling us that either they need to raise a significant amount of equity, in which case everyone's going to get diluted or we're not going to fly again. And actually, on careful analysis, we came to the conclusion that neither of those was right. Um, and we saw a very compelling opportunity. So, uh, you know, when I said earlier on that we don't make macro decisions, we make, you know, those micro decisions. As an example, of course, IAG is affected by what's going on in the world. It's a very macro focused business, but the analysis was all fundamental and to do with that business itself, not, not second guessing when a vaccine might come along. And then other examples during that period, we, we bought a tractor company. Uh, an Italian tract company. We bought a French auto supplier and we bought some banks, all for very stock specific reasons. So we can be opportunistic and we will be, but there are times when we might appear to be not trading very much at all for months on end or for longer. And then there are periods where we suddenly find a few opportunities. So that tends to be the way I, I operate. Yeah, thank you. And turning to the macro, um, Europe, had a difficult time at the beginning of the year um, with spreading, with the pandemic spreading. But recently, PMI data has been strong. The commission's increased economic forecasts, earnings, um, recent earnings appear to be beating expectations and the European Recovery Fund will kick in soon. So, but maybe reflecting that value, valuations are perhaps stretched. Um, how optimistic are you feeling 
for the investment outlook generally at the moment? So I think in, in a way, as I mean, very cleverly, as part of your question, you've almost um, answered um, what I was going to say. I mean, when I when I look at Europe at the moment, there is clearly a robust recovery underway. You know, that is something we can observe everywhere. And the speed and the scale of that recovery, it's not just me, it's taken by surprise. You know, it's been a very powerful recovery and, and unexpected in its strength. Um, so that leaves me feeling, obviously, optimistic about, about Europe from an economic point of view. However, you know, share prices are supposed to discount the future. And so clearly, just because I feel good about the robust uh, European economic recovery that's underway, it does not and should not necessarily lead me to be hugely excited about the prospects for equities. Because it comes back to what you were saying. What are the valuations like? How much is priced in? And when I look at the market today in Europe, um, I actually see many cases where certain sectors and companies are, you know, certainly in cyclical businesses, might have run a bit too fast, a bit too soon in terms of the share prices and the valuation. I mean, look at industrials, the industrial sector in Europe, you know, that sector and the companies within that sector are trading at the highest multiples they've ever traded at. I mean, I know conditions have improved since the crisis, but is that justified? You know, and, and I would argue no. And, and, and if I look at the mining companies as well, you know, some people may, may say they're, they're cheap on on you know, this year's multiple or, or free cash flow yield basis. But actually, I see those companies as relatively expensive because I believe that the commodity, the underlying commodity price has, has run, you know, run very aggressively and probably probably a bit overdone. So there's areas that I, I see valuations as being um, being a bit too high in the market. Um, having said that, you know, looking at the market level as a whole, I don't see valuations for Europe in for the whole market as being overly stretched versus history. You can make an argument that US is quite expensive versus history. I would look at a Schiller PE as a, as a way to try and look at valuations over a long period of time. And the US looks far more expensive than, than Europe. And within the European market, um, I, I found some opportunities in, in what I would describe as more defensive growth companies. You know, so these are businesses, and, and perhaps we can come on and talk about some of these later, but businesses like Roche or Nestle, Beiersdorf, you know, and these are businesses that actually, I think, have been largely ignored. You know, if, if people are watching the steel price going up and want to play the steel price, they're not buying Nestle. So I think there's an opportunity in some of those names potentially for, for long term minded investors. Great, thanks. And just before we um, move on to individual companies, I think one big question that investors think about with Europe is its large and growing debt levels and the difficulties of having a monetary union um, without a political union. So in the euro area, government debt to GDP ratio increased from 84% at the end of 2019 to 98% by the end of last year from some stats I was looking at. So how far can the central bank keep propping up the weaker countries and as an investor in Europe is this something that concerns you? This has been the perennial debate you know I for European investors anyway you know I started looking at European companies um, specifically you know back in back in kind of 2008 2009 and and ever since then you know this is this is the question that keeps coming up you know and and why does it keep coming up it keeps coming up because the EU as a construct is far from perfect and and we can all see that 
Um, and, I, you know, you, you, you put the point quite well in terms of, you know, the, the fiscal unity and, and, you know, how that how that tallies with the monetary system in place um, or, or doesn't tally. Ultimately, when I look at the EU, it's far from perfect as a structure, but it does bring a healthy stability to the region and investors like stability. And in fact, I've been, I suppose, again, with that perennial debate, I've become a bit more positive on the subject more recently. And there's several reasons for this. But I think one of them would be that following the onset of COVID-19, we actually saw a very fast response, both from a fiscal point of view and from an ECB monetary policy point of view. You know, you saw the launch of the EU recovery fund, which, of course, implicitly is, is almost the north of Europe supporting the South to some extent. Um, and, and, and that, for me, the speed of the joined up response is suggestive of a closer union than in recent years. And the other factor, which, again, has almost been, I mean, hasn't to say it's been forgotten would be unfair, but it has, has moved down people's kind of, uh, kind of thought list um, since COVID-19 is Brexit, which you know, has not triggered a wave of other countries saying, "Oh, yeah, that looks that looks um, that looks a good idea. Let's let's leave as well." You know, it hasn't triggered that kind of rush for the door. So actually, I'm feeling a bit more positive about about the 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 EU in general. And and as I say, stability or relative stability is something that investors like and should be good for European equities in, in general. Yeah, I guess there are some. Big elections coming up that people will be watching closely with the German federal election in September and the French presidential election next year. Um, but moving on, Europe, Europe is generally seen as a leader in sustainable investing. I want, is this something that you would agree with? And does this act as a tailwind for European companies? Perhaps industrials and energy companies are positioned better for the future, but then maybe on the flip side, making money out of sustainability might be finding the right technology companies to deal with these issues, which may be better in Europe. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on sustainable investing in Europe. It's a hugely complex subject. And even the word sustainability just means a different thing to almost everyone you ask. And the amount of different, I mean, if I think back to when I first joined the city, first started looking at companies, the kind of acronym changes over that time, you know, to to denote essentially what we would call ESG or sustainable investing these these days. So a very complex area. Um, however, when I when I look at Europe and I look at European companies and I think about European politicians even and and European investors and stakeholders, I do feel that we are um, almost leading the charge in a way towards a more sustainable future. Um, and, and that's you, you can see that in many ways, the, some of the simplest ways. So let's look at renewable energy companies as a really, a really simplistic way to, to see where the center of gravity is um, it, globally. Eight out of the 10 largest renewable energy companies are based in Europe. You know, let's let's think about where the turbines are made for some of these, you know, uh, offshore and onshore wind installations. You know, there's, there's, there's three um, of, the, of the largest wind turbine manufacturers globally are based in, are based in Europe with a focus on the kind of high end of the market um, in, in turbine manufacture. Um, if you look at electrification of rail, you've got a, a, a very prominent French company that's 
that's attractively positioned there. If you look at um, packaging, you know, we own a packaging company and we own that packaging company, which is the Swiss listed business SIG Combly Block. We own that because of its sustainability credentials, you know, offering an alternative to, to plastic packaging, you know, for milk bottles and for, for other things. So I do think Europe's ahead of ahead of the charge in some ways. And another more subtle way to, to look at this that requires a bit more, I suppose, a, a bit more thought is to actually look at how management teams are incentivized. And as a, as a, as a gross generalization, if I look at US incentive schemes, they tend to be quite shareholder friendly, which is obviously a good thing as a minority shareholder in companies. So you see a lot of total shareholder return, return on invested capital, uh, adjusted EPS growth. I, I, I don't like that as a, as, a, as a metric for long term incentive plans, but you see it there. If you go to Europe, you see a lot more slightly softer, more sustainability driven KPIs in there. And the example I like to give is a business that I've owned for a number of years, which is Dutch company DSM. And DSM is a very good company. And we can, again, we can talk more about it later, perhaps. But, but one of the striking features is that their long-term incentive plans for senior management is based 50% on sustainability achievement. So carbon emissions and energy efficiency and the like. And 50%, the other half, is based on more financial metrics that we'd be all more accustomed to seeing. So, yeah, I think there's widespread buy-in across Europe and widespread realisation that we need to change and that to change, we need to force the companies, the big companies to change, and we need to incentivize management to change, and we need to think about how it all fits holistically. Again, just taking a, taking a kind of step back for a second, if you look back over the last decade, even more than that, you know, 10, 12 years, if you would come in as a, let's say you're a global asset allocator, you come into work 12 years ago and go, right, I'm going to make one decision. I'm going to buy US tech. If you'd done that, that's the only decision you'd have needed to make in 12 years. And, you know, that's been a real paradigm. It's been a real, you know, structural theme that's lasted for, for, for a very long time. Now, when I look to the next 10 years, and of course, trying to find that easy decision, which, of course, no one can ever find in advance of it. But when I, when I look forward, you know, could this be the decade of sustainability? In which case we're in the foothills of this of this kind of change towards a more sustainable mindset. And if we are approaching and entering and have maybe just entered the decade of sustainability, how does this position Europe? Well, I feel pretty positive about how it positions Europe. And certainly from the starting point of, again, to use the US comparison, you know, 12 years ago, on a Shiller PE basis, the US, which just for clarity, Shiller PE will take the average of the last 10 years of of earnings rather than just look at a multiple of this year's earnings. So it kind of smooths earnings out over time. If you look at a, a Shiller PE basis, the US was trading at parity to Europe, you know, at, at 10, 11, 12 years ago. It's now at a significant premium. So the starting point is that much more interesting, especially if we are entering this decade of sustainability. That's really, really interesting. Definitely something for people interested in sustainable investing to look at the management incentive structures. Just if we're going to talk a bit about individual companies now, can you start by telling us what you've been buying and selling most recently? Um, you mentioned sort of IAG and other cyclical names towards the end of last year, but what, what have been your most recent moves? Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, I mentioned that kind of rebalancing, I suppose, that took place in October and November last year. Um, but actually, largely the companies we bought back then, I mean, IAG's had a had a tough couple of days as as people worry about the latest 
um, kind of virus uh, news flow, but the shares have doubled from where we bought them. So these things have moved very fast, and and to, to you know the share price has gone up a lot. So actually, we're more minded to be slightly reducing our exposure there. But if we look at some of the businesses that I bought this year, we've been far more balanced. So if October, November was a period of moving more towards, let's say, our improvers, you know, businesses that have been badly beaten up by COVID-19 and we saw an opportunity for recovery. So far in 2021, it's been much more balanced. So we found some what I think are very high quality businesses and some lower quality businesses that I think need to improve. So let me give you an example of, of both maybe. So in terms of the higher quality businesses, um, we uh, took a position in uh, in the IPO of a business called All Funds, um, which essentially is a, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, they would certainly call themselves a fintech business. You know, this is a company that, that, that is a disruptor in, 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 in asset management, so to speak. Um, but it actually is, we think of it as a platform business. So it's a business that sits between, um, you know, two counterparties, which in, in the case of all funds is the fund houses, uh, Janice Henderson, et cetera, and the fund distributors. So, you know, wealth managers, let's say. And um, essentially, it's one of these businesses that just it benefits from classic platform economics, because if you think about it, if if let's say they have ten fun houses, ten when they first launch the platform, if an if an eleventh joins, then looking at the other side of the platform from a fund distributor point of view, then when they're having the conversations with new potential fund distributors, they can then say, oh, we've got eleven fund fund houses on the platform, not ten like we had six months ago. It becomes incrementally more attractive. So another distributor joins. And then, of course, when another distributor joins, they can go back to the, the fund houses and say, oh, we've now got 24 distributors. There were 20. And of course, the business scales and scales over time. So scale brings scale and the platform economics, this business are very attractive. And they're dealing in repeat revenues because they get a they get a cut of of the fees on funds. So we think that's a really good business and one that returns are high, but we believe will be sustainably high over over the coming years so that's the first example and then looking at a um a, a slightly lower quality business i think but one that is capable of real improvement i would look at um a company we bought called Beiersdorf. so um german company um most famous for owning uh nivea um as as, as a brand and that brand we think has been has been kind of undermanaged. We think the potential of that business is 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 great, and you know when you look at the margin structure of the business and you compare it to other consumer goods companies, you can just objectively notice that the Nivea brand at um, margin of you know twelve percent something in that region compares to other similar large global consumer brands that might be earning fifteen to seventeen percent margins. So. Could, could margins go up over time? I mean, who knows? But, but you know, we're, we're, we're having a kind of um, doing the analysis on, on that. But we think that's interesting. So those those are two examples, you know, one classic compounder, all funds and one one hopefully improver, which is uh, which is Biasdorf. Yeah. How do you find the regulatory environment as an investor, probably in the context of the um, the platform funds, all funds that you were talking about? Do you find it's inducive to helping companies grow? I mean, it's a, very, it's a very good question. I mean, regulation um, is making, I suppose, directly with respect to the fund management industry, when we think about fund houses and distributors, regulation is making our job harder. 
in terms of the, the burden of administration. Now, I'm not saying it's unnecessary. I think that the industry does need to be regulated appropriately, obviously. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it means that as a fund house or as a distributor, you have far more forms to fill in than you did. You have far more um, you know, adherence to making sure that you're treating each customer fairly. So completely appropriate regulation. But that is something that all funds actually can help with quite nicely. You know, they have a lot of capability to offer their clients to essentially say, you want to sell funds into these regions. We understand the regulatory environment in those regions. We will help you with that process. So they can really use their scale and their geographical exposure to, to really benefit fund houses. And also from the fund distributor point of view, you know, those guys have got to think a lot about the funds that they are putting their clients into. Is it appropriate for that particular client? And how do they explain that it's appropriate? And again, all funds with the huge amount of data that they have and history of data and ability to compare funds and characteristics over time and versus different competitors, they can sell that information. They can sell that analysis to a fund distributor as well. So regulation is a is it's moving in the right direction it is necessary but it does benefit a platform business like all funds great thank you and now nestle is your largest holding um, according to your fact sheet and you mentioned it earlier as a sort of defensive growth company that um might have been relatively forgotten so there was an article in the ft in um May, saying that it's it's been criticised for selling too many sugary products. Um, I think the management acknowledged that more than 60% of its mainstream food and drinks products don't meet a recognised definition of health. Um, so my question for you is, will it um, sharpen up its act for the sake of the waistline of its customers? Um, and if it does, might this impact its profits? A very good question. Um, and it, I mean, that there are, there are many kind of features of the way that that, that that kind of argument was presented that I would push back on a bit. So for example, you know, the, the core portfolio that everyone has referred to and saying, oh, 60% of their products are unhealthy. The core portfolio doesn't include things like coffee, doesn't include things like um, the kind of baby, you know, infant nutrition doesn't include um, uh, pet food, obviously. So there, there are pretty significant chunks of exposure that are not counted within that. So it's it's less than 60 of the whole group as, as a start. But um, but yeah, look, if you eat Kit Kats all day, um, that's probably it's probably not particularly healthy for you. Um, I, I tend to kind of side with the Mark Schneider view, Mark Schneider, CEO, um, at Nestle. And, you know, his view is, and, and actually my mum's view as well, um, is everything in moderation. So I think there is a place for, you know, food that isn't necessarily um, that good for you if it's all you ate. Um, but when we think about Nestle, to, to get back to the kind of investment case and to link it into your, your question, we invested in a story of change. You know, when we invested in the business, it was because of Mark Schneider's entrance to the company. Mark Schneider came from Fresenius, a business we know very well and historically have been investors in. We rate his ability very highly. So that was actually the first thing that got us interested in this, you know, 
mega cap food business that, you know, at first glance is probably a decent investment, but not the most exciting investment in the world. But it's his entry that really got us got us interested. We met with him several times and that that formed the basis of our analysis that we then used to then go and buy a position. And it was the story of change that we liked. So when he came in, you know, the business was actually growing at two percent. It was growing. It was significant. It's hard to remember. It's back in 2016, 17, but it was significantly underperforming peers. And he came in with a story of there are certain areas that we do not want to have exposure to or we want to reduce our exposure to. And there are other areas that we want to increase our exposure to. And when you take the forces of both of those things together, we're going to grow more. We're going to grow at a faster pace as a result. And the areas he wanted to move away from, and and since that point, so since 2016 and 17, he has moved away from, are things like confectionery. You know, they sold their U.S. confectionery business, um, frozen frozen ready-made meals. They've moved away from, and the areas they've moved towards are much more science-based, infant nutrition, the pet care. Um, so ice cream, that's another area, again, they, 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 they put into a, a JV, actually, their, their US ice cream business. So it's a story of change. It's a business that is moving away from those areas that are less healthy towards areas that are healthier and more in demand. And the other aspect of the business that we liked when we first invested was, and similar to the Beiersdorf angle we're taking kind of now, is margins were 15, 16% when Schneider took over. And again, if we just did a simple peer comparison, we could see potential for margins to be much higher. Uh, margins are now moving much more towards the kind of 18, 19 percent level. So that's and, and growth, incidentally, has gone from two percent to you know mid single digits. The pressure is rising for them to do more, as revealed in that FT article. And I'm sure they will. That the right man is at the helm. And I believe that under his leadership, they will continue to move in the right direction. Yeah, there's also um, inflation's being talked about a lot at the moment. And of course, nobody really knows what's going to happen. But am I right in thinking that a company like Nestle would be able to increase its prices or wouldn't be as hurt by inflation as some some other companies might be? I think that's a, a fair assumption. If you look at the basic consumer goods model, you're selling millions of very, very small um, products to millions of relatively small buyers, i.e. you and me going down and buying a kit, buying our 25 Kit Kats to keep us keep us busy that day. Um, so, yeah, that that gives an element of pricing power because they're, they're the person buying from them is not a very, you know, strong multinational business that might exert a, a lot of pressure. And the other company you mentioned earlier was Roche, um, big healthcare company, which um, is also a large holding in your fund. How far do you think its diagnostics boom during the pandemic can be sustained? Um, and has the pandemic catalyzed any other changes or trends for the company, which you think could help to set it up for a more promising growth trajectory? So starting with diagnostics, um, in short, if we look at the short term, no, it's unsustainable. Um, you know, they are seeing at the moment very heightened unsustainably high revenues from the antigen and PCR testing associated with COVID-19. Now, you know, unless we're on, you know, wave 10 in, in, in three years time, that the, the volume of those tests will come down from these very heightened levels. But I'm I'm kind of less interested in that in that base effect when we think about the business. That that's some, that isn't really something I see as fundamental. Well 
What I see fundamentally is the structural changes that COVID might bring. And I actually see COVID-19 as a contributing factor behind an uptick in testing in general, general levels of testing of all, of all sorts. And I think Roche, as well as other testing companies, can be a beneficiary of that. Um, in addition to that, Roche placed a lot of machines. This is kind of a, it's, you know, some, some people might refer to it as a razor, razor blade model. You place a machine and then you benefit from selling the consumable testing kits as, as the tests are, as the tests happen. Um, they've placed a lot of machines over the last 12 months and that, it, that, will be a, a, that will bring a big tick up in the consumable usage over the next few years. So I, I see a, a good outlook for growth there once we get beyond this kind of comp period. And then your second question, um, what's changed? I mean, certainly the diagnostics, as I explained, when I think about the pharma business, there's, there's only one thing that really springs to mind. And this is a really notable thing that I, I picked up on a few weeks ago, which was the FDA approved an Alzheimer's drug. Um, I believe it's a Biogen um, drug, and they approved it based not actually on um, clinical endpoints, but actually based on surrogate endpoints. Um, now, I'm no specialist, but essentially that seems to suggest a slightly more flexible approach than uh, from the regulator in, in the US than has historically been the case. That's interesting for Roche for a couple of reasons. Firstly, they have a drug that actually follows exactly the same mechanism as that Biogen drug. But just more generally, again, has COVID-19 triggered a change in regulators' approach to novel medicine? I mean, that's a big statement to make and only time will tell. But, you know, has it encouraged the regulator to be a bit more open about allowing, as long as, you know, safety requirements are fulfilled, allowing the, the, the early approval of potentially life-saving and life-extending medical products? And if that is the case, then maybe we're at a period where, you know, we can see a big innovation boom in, in pharmaceutical companies as they start to invest more behind innovation in the knowledge that they've got a regulator who is who is uh, approving drugs. So we'll see. But I, I think Roche is, is, is well placed. Yeah, there's all sorts of interesting um, questions and opportunities in the healthcare sector. And financials is the second largest weighting in your fund. Um, how are these companies overcoming negative interest rates? Um, perhaps in the you could use the example of Munich uh, reinsurance. Yeah, sure. Um, well, they're not. Is the is the simple truth? You know, the, these businesses. I mean, if you look at banks, for example, negative or low rates significantly challenge the earnings capability of the business model because um, NII, you know, net interest income get gets squeezed. Um, and that's something that's unavoidable. You know, how do they avoid that? They, they could lend in a more risky fashion, but that usually ends in, in, in one way. Um, insurance companies, they're, they're also similarly impacted via um, lower investment income. You know, they, they receive cash from selling policies and, and that cash is invested in assets. And, and you know, if, if interest rates are low, then they're getting a low investment return from that. So, there's limited ways in which that pressure can be offset. But if I look at Munich Re, there's a few things that they've done. Firstly, they're trying to price underwriting. So there is a degree of pricing power in the industry, a degree. It's not a classic industry of pricing power, but they can, you know, if conditions are difficult, they can force through a bit of pricing increase. And we're seeing that at the moment. And they've also changed the asset mix. I think in a way that is is, is sensible rather than risky. And again, it's something that we would obviously look into, but that's how they're dealing with the situation. But ultimately, this doesn't really improve 
until we get interest rates going up a bit. Um, and that will relieve some of the pressure. And again, one of the points I made earlier in on this podcast was that um, equity markets are great discounters of the future, or that's what you what you hope and assume. And the fact that banks and insurance companies, especially the banks, have rallied strongly is suggestive that investors are starting to price in a return of of interest rates and the price pricing in a return of some element of inflation. So perhaps the future looks looks slightly better than, than the last 10 years for these businesses. It looks like the trust has no gearing at the moment. Um, I'm looking at winter flood data sheets and maybe down from about 3% this time last year. Is this sort of reflective of what you're seeing in your opportunity set? Um, yeah, I think that that is for me. That's the crucial. That's the crucial phrase: is opportunity set. So when I think about gearing, I do not think about trying to make a macro decision. So I will not come into work one day and think, "Wow, Europe's recovering really nicely. The economy is all going in the right direction. Let's put on a load of leverage because I think equities are going up." You know, that that is absolutely not what I would do. What I do is is really look around me at the kind of companies I want to invest in, so those compounders and those improvers. And if I've got a lot of companies that I've analysed and I've done the work on and done the analysis on and I want to buy, then I'm going to buy them and that's going to increase leverage or reduce our net cash position um, if we're in a net cash position. And if the opposite is true, so if I'm sitting there spending day in, day out trying to find new investment opportunities, I can't find anything then I think you'll find that leverage will decrease or will enter into a, into a cash position. So the obvious conclusion is at the moment, the opportunity set I see in front of me is not as strong as it was in March last year or in June last year. And that is reflective of something that, again, we discussed earlier on in the podcast, reflective of the fact that cyclical companies have re-rated quite aggressively and are reflecting an improvement in the environment that I think is happening, but it's being priced in to some extent. And those good quality companies that I'm far more biased towards, you know, wanting to own good businesses, which is essentially what Eurotrust is all about, owning good companies. Those companies are also relatively expensive at the moment. So it's, a, it's an opportunity set thing. And that's, and that, that's definitely the way I think about it. Great. Well, there's so many more things I would like to ask you, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Mary, thank you. And thank you for, for as you say, uh, and I believe you being interested in Europe. And also one more final thing to say is thank you for not asking me what is my favourite stock? The most dangerous question any fund manager is asked. So thank you very much. <laughs> Pleasure. 